Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel Podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. Thank you, Chris, and thank you to the worship team. It's actually a good sign when your speaker is winded from singing too loud. So thank you for leading us today. Today we'll be reading from Psalm 77. And we have a lot to talk about, so I would like to just jump right in to our message. Um, but first, before we look at the, the, the passage today, uh, I want to talk about one of my all-time favorite books. This is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's not his most well-known book. Uh, it's his very last novel. And in my opinion, it's his very best. If you disagree with me, I will meet you in the parking lot afterwards. Um, But it'll be friendly because if you would even bother, that means we're friends already, so. Um, This is Lewis's retelling of the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche. The story starts with an ancient king who has three daughters. Uh, But it's told from the perspective of the oldest sister whose name is Orwell. The youngest sister is named Psyche, and she is so beautiful that Cupid, the son of the goddess Venus, falls in love with her and takes her to be his wife, to live with him in a palace on the condition that she never see his face. But when Orwell, distressed, comes looking for her, Lewis suddenly reveals that Cupid's palace is actually invisible to Orwell's eyes. She can't see it. So from her perspective, Psyche seems to be either insane or possessed by a demon of some kind. She's claiming that she is married to a god, and she's raving about this palace she supposedly lives in, but it's clear that she's just wandering homeless in this empty valley. Scared and confused, Orwell convinces Psyche to disobey her husband, whoever he is, and look at his face but this ends up ruining both of their lives. Cupid is angry with Psyche, and he sends her into exile where she must seek redemption. And Orwell spends the rest of her days lamenting the loss of her beloved sister. In Lewis's retelling, the main problem that he points up is Orwell's inability to see what the gods are up to, to see the spiritual reality, and because her her understanding is out of sync with that reality, uh, this puts her in a state of tension, and it causes her to make damaging choices to try and fix it. Now, when I say tension, I don't just mean emotions. Uh, I'm trying to use a term to describe what I'm seeing in this passage. Tension, in this sense, it includes thoughts as well as feelings and actions. Tension is like being stuck in place while also being pulled 
in all directions. It's also not just an inner state, it's deeply connected to our circumstances. We, in life, often find ourselves thrust into situations uh, where we just, our beliefs don't seem to line up with reality. In these situations, we don't know what to think or feel or even do. And that's what I mean by tension. Tension can cause us to doubt our core beliefs, question our identity, and cause us deep pain and confusion. Today's passage, Psalm 77, it was used in the book of Psalms as a communal lament. Israel would sing this song when they reflected on the exile in Babylon. And they would mourn the pain of losing their land. And seemingly, when God's promises started to conflict with reality, this is the archetypal time of tension for Israel. And much of the Psalms reflect this. But this Psalm was actually written earlier. And it takes us into the experience of an individual, a man named Asaph, who was King David's chief musician. And in this psalm, he's wrestling with the question of how we can encounter God in times of tension. And in this process of seeking and wrestling, he discovers four ways that tension, far from destroying our faith, is actually a means by which we grow in it. So let's read together Psalm 77. I'll be reading from the ESV. You're welcome to follow along in a translation you're more familiar with. Beginning in verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyes open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I remember the days of old. I consider the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the deeds, the wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work, and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O Lord, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path 
through the great waters, and yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. At the very beginning of this reflection, Asaph describes that what he's going through is the day of my trouble. The word in Hebrew is actually much stronger than that. It comes from a root meaning to bind or to wrap or even to be cramped. It's this idea that things don't fit. Something is too tight. Um, It's like Asaph is saying, this situation that I'm in doesn't make sense in my beliefs. It's like I'm trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. In this sense, we could translate the word anguish or turmoil. My, my day of anguish, I call out to God. Asaph goes on to say that his soul and his spirit feel weak and even near to fainting. In his very core, Asaph is coming apart. But why? What's the cause? Asaph doesn't actually tell us. He doesn't actually describe the physical situation that he's going through. And that's because it's not the point, and he knows this. What does he tell us? He actually tells us that it's the thought of God that's keeping him awake and crushing his soul. Now, why would that be? Shouldn't the God of Israel be a comfort, a comforting thought to his chosen people? Well, not necessarily. Okay, so I've quoted a book that I dearly love, and now I have to quote a movie that I don't actually like that much. And again, I'm just making enemies all around because some of you, when you find out what it is, will, will disagree. Um, but it, it does have one scene in it that does help to illustrate my point. In The Dark Knight Rises, and normally I am a Christopher Nolan fanboy, but in this case it wasn't his strongest. But... In The Dark Knight Rises, the main villain, Bane, defeats Batman. He actually breaks his back. And rather than killing him, he decides to torture him. And he does this by throwing him into a prison that's actually a big, wide-open pit. Now, the reason he does this is not so that Batman can escape, but actually so he'll be driven to despair by false hope. Um, I have to warn you, when I quote people, I feel compelled to impersonate them, so here is my very best Bane. Uh, At this point, Bane explains himself. He says, If you've seen it, you know. It's really hard to understand. Mask off. It was here that I learned the truth about despair. Hope. I learned that there can be no true despair without hope. There you go, you've been subjected. (laughs) No true despair without hope. Bain understands that our deepest hopes and dreams can produce our greatest pain when they are disappointed. And just like uh, in that analogy for Asaph, God's promises have become a source of pain because his situation seems to contradict them. But notice something. Notice Asaph's posture. It's not a posture of defeat or despair 
or apathy even. He's not lying in bed. He's not slumping to the floor. He's sitting upright in the middle of the night with his hands outstretched. And he says he does this day and night over and over again. In all of this pain and turmoil, Asaph is confident that although in the midst of his struggle, God seems to be the cause, he's actually the solution. And so he brings all of his pain, all of his complaint to God with boldness. And in doing so, he shows us the first way that we can encounter God in times of tension. We can approach God when his presence seems painful. And we can tell him, it seems, as far as I can tell, like you're the problem here. You promised, you didn't deliver. Why? It's a hard thing to admit and to be this honest, but it's a necessary starting point because the very act of calling out to God is a declaration of faith that although this appears to be the case, it cannot be so. God must actually be the solution. And in verses four to nine, Asaph starts digging deeper, looking into his thoughts to find this solution. He longs to remember what he calls my song in the night. And the term here is actually referring to stringed music. So I think he's actually remembering his own past experiences. Um, and he's a worship leader. So he's thinking about worshiping and leading worship in the tabernacle. So that means that the days of old, the years long ago, are actually describing Asaph's personal experience, his memories of happier times, like the good old days. I mean, it's sort of like what maybe Chris is probably thinking right now. Our worship leader, like, you know, I, re I remember when Reg used to preach, and uh, there were no Bane impersonations or anything uncomfortable like that. That was, that was the high point. <clears throat> but in all this searching, Asaph is looking for something. But instead of finding an answer, all we get in verses 7 and 8 are questions. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? This is a huge question. The word here is maybe a familiar one to some of us. It's chesed. Um, I've been practicing my Hebrew gutturals. This is God's covenant love. It's the love that God committed to give Israel when he made his covenants with Abraham, with Moses, with David. In other words, this is the foundation of what it is to be an Israelite. And Asaph is questioning it. He's questioning his very faith in God. And not only that, but his identity as one of the chosen people. He's even questioning God's own reliability. Is God angry with us? Did we sin? Is God able to forget? Is, is that even possible? Is he inconsistent? Is he unreliable? What could it be? He's going through the list of possibilities. And in these questions, we can see that Asaph's basic ideas about God, his basic assumptions, have been challenged by his circumstances. He's been unsettled at his core, and he's exploring this, these questions. But once again, he's not hiding them from God. Boldly, he's bringing these doubts and concerns and questions to his creator. 
And rather than than running from uncomfortable questions, Asaph confronts them. In doing this, he models for us a second way that we can meet God in times of tension. We can confront our own inadequate ideas about God. This is hard to do, humbling even, but Asaph is showing us that it's actually essential in times of tension. I think many of us have experienced this, that hard times have a way of exposing ideas that are just unhelpful and just too simple to make sense of our suffering. But it's not the end of the story. Asaph isn't content to settle with skepticism. In verses 10 to 15, he digs even deeper. I think right down to the core. And it's here, starting in verse 10, that we finally see the turning point. There's a fundamental shift in his thinking. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. It turns out, and he's just discovered, the main issue all along was not Asaph's situation, but rather his perspective. Yes, he's in a tense situation, but the real problem, the source of his tension, is his interpretation of it. He needs to remember something, which implies that he has been forgetting something up till this point. What is that? What has Asaph been forgetting? He has been forgetting God's actions. And this shows in the language that he uses. Uh, Look at verses one to nine. It's all about my distress, my heart, my soul, my spirit, my song in the night. But from verse 10 onward, his attention drastically shifts to your deeds, your wonders, your strength, your way. Also notice what name for God he's using here. This is the only time this name shows up. Whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it's actually Yahweh, the covenant name, the name that God used when he revealed himself to Israel in Egypt. So Asaph doesn't just need to remember his theology. He doesn't just need to remember facts about God. He needs to remember God's redemptive actions in Israel's history. In other words, he needs to return to Scripture. And this is pretty relatable, isn't it? Um, We often forget who God is because we in the busyness and the turmoil and tensions of life have lost sight of the things he's done. And we default to ideas about God that are familiar and comfortable. Maybe it's uh, the theology we formed at Bible college. Maybe it's our parents' beliefs. Maybe it's those of our tradition. All good things, but inadequate when we need to be digging deeper. If they replace scripture, then they become obstacles. And Asaph's example in times of tension actually challenges us to encounter God in a third way. We must remember God's redemptive actions. But let me clarify. Asaph isn't just telling us to read more scripture, read more events recorded in the Bible. 
He also wants us to reflect on them, reflect on their meaning, like we did this morning with the Lord's Supper. The, the term here is meditate, which in Hebrew can be translated to mutter. I think we've, uh, we've already encountered this word at some point this summer. Uh, it's this idea of just chewing on an idea, like a, like a tough piece of gristle, or if you, you know, if you give a dog a bone, he just goes at it. It's, it's turning an idea over and over and over in your mind until it starts to paint a picture in your imagination. It's being so engrossed in an idea that you actually start to unconsciously mumble and mutter. It's, it's like it just starts to seep out of you. Um, it's, it's that scene from Lord of the Rings, uh, the first one, where Gandalf is sitting by the fire and he's thinking about Bilbo's ring and he's wondering, could this be the one ring? And he's just sitting there, riddles in the dark, my precious. You should be honored if I feel comfortable enough to dish out all my impressions. Um, you've, you've made a good impression. But in any case, Asaph is showing us why we should reflect and meditate in this way. In verse 13, he says, Your way, O God, is holy. This term, way, it brings to mind the image of a dusty road, a beaten path. It's well-worn, and it's been walked over again and again. Now, a path or a road um, out in the desert or in the country, it shows you the route that people take regularly over and over again. And that says something about who they are. In other words, when we reflect on God's actions, we, we start to get a sense of how he operates, his mannerisms, his pattern of behavior, his usual conduct, who he is revealed in what he does. And when we immerse ourselves in the world of Scripture, our mental pictures start to change over time. And we actually see this happening with Asaph in verses 16 to 20. So all of a sudden, and it's even a little jarring, we find ourselves suddenly thrown into the middle of this dramatic scene that seems like something out of a disaster movie. Where on earth are we, you might ask? Well, this is poetry, so I think that we've been transported into Asaph's imagination. And here, we get to see firsthand the image that's forming in his mind as he reflects on Scripture. Specifically, he's thinking about the Exodus. He's remembering that foundational moment when Israel was brought out of Egypt. And that when they crossed through the Red Sea, you can't get any more dramatic than this. Uh, he's picturing God as some kind of like epic Marvel crossover between Hawkeye and Zeus, which I guess technically they are actually both in the same MCU. It's, it's weird. I'm more of a DC man myself. Again, I'm making all the enemies today. Um, he's, God is seen shooting hundreds, if not thousands, of lightning bolts as arrows in all directions. And the scene is more dramatic than that. Even the water has personality. It's terrified, and the word is writhing. The, the water is just crawling, trying to get away from God as he approaches. And Asaph uses the term great deep. In Hebrew, the word is techom. This word is important. It, it appears in Genesis 1, 
verse 2. And it describes the deep and dangerous waters out of which God created everything. It's like the basic substance or stuff of creation, but it's also the most dangerous and unpredictable part of it. But even it is seen shaking in terror as God approaches. In this scene, God is an unstoppable warrior, bending creation itself to his will. But that's not the whole story. That's not the center. That's not the point of this picture. Where actually is God in this scene? We see his power on display. We see his whirlwind, his thunder, his lightning bolts. But where is he? We actually don't see him until the very end. Asaph, there's a lot of movement in this psalm, by the way. This could easily become the part of the show where Brendan nerds out on Hebrew poetry, but it's not going to happen. I'm going to restrain myself. But, But Asaph is drawing our attention downward, down to the surface of the waters. Your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters. There's that word way again. This is the scene that reveals God's character. And what does it say? Where was God when he was rescuing Israel? Well, he was in the water, right there with his people in the middle of the storm. Where was God in that day when the world seemed to be falling apart around us? We didn't know what was happening. We were in tension. He was among his people, personally guiding them to safety. Here, right here, Asaph finds what he's been looking for, a full display of God's character towards his people in a time of tension. Make no mistake, the Red Sea crossing was a time of unbelievable tension for Israel. They were literally in between identities, going from being slaves in Egypt to being kings in Canaan. In this scene, God's power and his love are on full display. And Asaph sums up these two ideas in the image of a shepherd leading his flock. And this actually really fits because shepherds in ancient Israel were seen as both defenders and guides. They were warriors in a sense. They would carry two staves. One was a rod. It was for defending the flock and disciplining it. The other was more like a a crook, more like uh, something for guiding the sheeps, the sheep, sheeps, the sheep, gently. Losing my words. Um, But for guiding the flock in the direction they should go, gently, lovingly. God in this picture is powerful enough to overcome the tensions of the world, but loving enough to meet us in them. And by reimagining God this way, Asaph shows us what happens when we choose to reflect on Scripture. This is the fourth point. We are enabled to experience God's full redemptive character. But there's something more for us here. As believers today in the church, we are actually able to see even more deeply into God's character than Asaph ever could. And I don't want us to miss this connection. In Mark's gospel, we read that after Jesus fed over 5,000 people, he stayed on shore and his disciples went out into the Sea of Galilee. But then, in the middle of the storm, he walks out to meet them. 
And at this point, Mark's gospel alone adds this fascinating little detail that I just want to draw your attention to. Mark 6, verses 48 to 50, I'll read. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Here's the detail. Jesus meant to pass by them. That's a little odd. Like, where was he going? Did he have some place to be? Was it like this awkward moment where Jesus is out for his, you know, nightly stroll in the middle of storms and sees, oh, geez, these guys again. I cannot get a moment alone, even out in the middle of the ocean. That's how I imagine Jesus talked, really sort of high-strung. No, that's not true. Um, Jesus knew they were out there. He did this intentionally. He was making a point. He wanted them to see him. And he wanted their minds to be drawn to this psalm, Psalm 77. He wanted to portray himself as Yahweh, come to lead his people in a new exodus. Except this time, God not only joins us in the storm with us, he joins us in our humanity, taking, his tensions, taking our tensions upon himself to the cross in order to create a new world without tension, without conflict, and without chaos. You see, while Asaph could look back on the Exodus to see God's love and power on display, the Exodus actually pointed forward to the fuller picture where we see the fullest expression of God's character in Christ Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this is the picture we must always turn to in times of tension. Christ, the Redeemer, who is so powerful that he is now remaking the world into a new creation, yet so loving that he joined us first in our tensions, and so intimate that he remains present with us in his spirit until he returns and ends all our times of tension. In other words, Jesus is, in his own words, the good shepherd. Something happens to us when we refocus on this picture. When we return to God's character revealed in Christ, uh, not only does our perception of God change, but so does our understanding of the world, even our own circumstances. In Jesus, we see the whole plan, the big picture revealed, what it's all about, and tensions are reframed. They no longer feel like being permanently stuck in place, a reason to panic. Instead, they start to feel more like processes in a larger plan that gives them purpose and meaning, and also a conclusion. They're temporary stages that are meant to discipline us. They're part of the picture, not the whole thing. God's plan now comes to define how we see our circumstances, not the other way around, which was the problem in Asaph's life in the beginning of this psalm. And the tension can be seen now not as a threat, but as an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. Coming back full circle, till we have faces, 
Throughout the whole story, our main character, Orwell, has grown more and more bitter at Cupid for taking her beloved sister away and offering no explanation as to why. This seems cruel. And near the end of her life, the gods finally grant her an audience. They let her bring her complaint before them in a heavenly tribunal. She is handed a roll, a scroll with her own words on it, and she reads this to the assembled spirits. But to her surprise, she suddenly finds that without realizing it, she has been reading it over and over and over again, and would do so for eternity unless someone stopped her. In this moment, seeing herself, she realizes that her focus was stuck on her own painful experiences and that this kept her from seeing the divine purpose for her suffering, for the tensions that she has had to endure. And she never could have seen it unless she had been shown. So she draws this conclusion. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? Eh? That's the title. This story is told from the perspective of a pagan living in the time before Christ. It's Lewis's way of describing the human condition. Like Oral, we are naturally stuck in our own perspectives. We're focused on our flesh. We're fixated on our own lives, wrapped up in our own painful experiences. Like Peter, walking on the water, we keep looking down at the waves roaring all around us, at our own tensions. But unlike Orwell and like Peter, for us, the ultimate miracle has happened. God has entered human history, walking on the water, coming to meet us face to face in the middle of our mess. And he's already at work in us, giving us new eyes and new hearts. But he does this in a way that is the opposite of what we would expect. God didn't, or rather Jesus, same deal, Jesus didn't calm the storm and then walk out into it, he rather walked out into the storm to meet his disciples. God allows for times of tension to come our way so that he can meet us in the midst of them, so that he can capture our attention and transform our hearts. And by constantly returning to Scripture, by looking again and again and again into the face of Jesus in times of tension, we can start to look more like him. We can gain more of his character and his perspective on our own situations. And as Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 said, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord over the storms that rage around us. You are the God who resolves tension in your time, and you are the God who meets us in the middle of the storm. 
We live in times of tension, Lord, like Israel in exile, uh, wondering when your promises will be fulfilled, Lord. Um, we see it all around us, uh, even in our culture specifically. Uh, Mark Sayers has called this a gray zone period, a time when our culture is being reshaped and we don't understand how. Uh, but we feel it in more personal ways, Lord, in our own lives. Um, we pray in these times, personal and corporate, Lord, that you would meet us in the storm and that you would draw us by your Spirit again to your Scriptures, to the stories of your divine actions, to the face of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.